This is Macro Horizons monthly episode 19, Falling into Place, a Corona Session Election, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Kierens, here with Ian Linging, Greg Anderson, Stephen Gallo, Dan Creter, Ben Reitzis, John Hill, and Ben Jeffrey from our FIC Macro Strategy team to bring you our outlook for U.S. rates, IG spreads, and the U.S. dollar heading into the U.S. elections and beyond. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Massive fiscal and monetary stimulus have pushed investors out the risk curve. Equity markets are at or near record highs, and corporate credit spreads have retraced almost 90% of the widening. But the market is bifurcated between the winners and the losers. Not only are the equity and credit markets bifurcated, but the employment market is as well. With the Fed now committed to allowing employment to rise above estimates of its maximum levels, and inflation to run modestly above 2% to make up for past shortfalls, the rates market is priced to a Fed on hold for the better part of five years. Several risk events are on the horizon, including uncertainty surrounding the integrity of the U.S. election process, potential delays in the election results, in addition to the election outcome itself and its implications for fiscal policies, the deficit, and employment and growth. Let's start off today's discussion with employment, our outlook for employment. Employment is the backbone of the economy, and so much of how all of this works out over the coming months will depend upon the employment picture. Yeah, Margaret, I think that you have the premise right insofar as the balance of 2020 and certainly 2021 is going to be a function of how things play out in the labor market. We know that in the beginning of the pandemic, the labor market took a very significant hit because of the shutdowns and the frontline service sector was really the part of the labor force that was most significantly impacted. Now, there have been some transitions, i.e. the work from home revolution, that will eventually drive a reshape or rethinking of consumption patterns and how permanent the new consumption patterns will be. I think that that's part of the story that's really going to play out over the course of the next several quarters. I think the biggest challenge is going to be Initially, we lost 22 million jobs in March and April, and we've had a strong rebound over the past three to four months, assuming that Friday comes in okay. Employment has gained about 10 million jobs, but we still have 12 million unemployed. I think our best case scenario here is that we're going to be in a situation with elevated unemployment likely for several years, which is a little bit counter to what I think the Fed is expecting with the 6.5% unemployment rate projected for the end of the year 2021. 
Well, Powell did a good job at Jackson Hole of focusing market participants on some of the existing divergences within the labor market, even ahead of the pandemic. So what the Fed has effectively done is in their transition to a new framework, they're really putting an emphasis on an unemployment rate that they would like to see drift even lower than one might have otherwise expected given our prior definitions of full employment. And that speaks to this idea that's floating around about a K-shaped recovery. The notion being that there are subsets of the labor market that will outperform and underperform, and we're already, to some extent, starting to see that play out. Yeah, Ian, you make a great point about the bifurcation in the labor market. And I think it's important to consider that the conversation around the employment market as a whole, and most notably the shift we saw at Jackson Hole, really what it means is going forward, there's going to be an elevated comfort on the part of the Fed to allow unemployment to trend below what was previously considered as sustainable. While we'll get an updated SEP at the next Fed meeting, the latest projections show an unemployment rate of 6.5% by the end of 2021 and 5.5% by the end of 2022. Now, clearly the FOMC is always going to skew on the optimistic side of things, but even this may be a bit too aggressive. And I wonder if it will ultimately take longer to get employment back to the levels we saw before the pandemic, which by many measures were below what was viewed as sustainable. And Ben, you mentioned that word sustainable, and I think it's going to be very important over the next few years to reshape the framework by which we think about unemployment. Arguably, the most important shift that the Fed made to their long-run framework in the past couple weeks was the adjustment to the language saying they only care about shortfalls in employment. In other words, they're not really interested in deviations, which is what the previous language was. So implicitly what this means is they're not worried about an unsustainable level of unemployment. Basically, one could even argue they might not even think that that necessarily exists. They're really only interested in employment that is coming below something that's seen as neutral. If it's above, all the better, partly because, frankly, they don't know where neutral is. Where does this put us on net? Well, a few years from now, it's entirely possible that we could be back in the same situation we were in the prior decade, whereby unemployment is low, but so is inflation. However, the Fed felt the need to move rates up to neutral in order to balance the two. This time around, if we still have low inflationary pressure and low unemployment, they're not going to stand in the way of that. They're going to keep rates lower for longer, and they're going to stay in a very accommodative sense. That translates to me like further downward pressure in the nominal yield curve, and it kind of makes sense in that state of the world that you see five-year treasury yields at 25 basis points. I think you all make uh, excellent points, uh, and, and and if you take a look at how the Fed has shifted here, it kind of lines up a little bit more with the global backdrop and how other global central banks approach policy with kind of a shift in focus away from employment, away from the unemployment rate, just given the fact that they don't really know how low it can get before inflation starts to pick up. And again, more of a focus on inflation and that dynamic in particular. I mean, that's really what other central banks around the world, the ECB, the Bank of Canada, the Bank of England do tend to focus on much more. The Fed has kind of been an outlier to some extent with their focus on unemployment in addition to inflation. And so this brings them a little bit more in line. And given the past decade of lowflation and the inability of global central banks to drive inflation over that period, 
<laughs> we're clearly in for a long period of very low rates here, as John mentions. Well, that does bring up the question, what in the U.S. will ultimately drive inflation? Where is it going to come from? A weaker dollar will certainly help contribute to importing inflation, at least on the margin. But the type of inflation that the Fed needs to see is going to come from higher wages, spurring demand-side true consumer price inflation. And I don't see that in the foreseeable future. If we look at what has been driving some of the relatively strong recent reads, what have we seen? We have seen a spike in the cost of new and used cars. Well, that kind of makes sense in an environment such as a pandemic, particularly given what the Fed has done to rates and financing costs on the consumer level obviously following suit. And then there's the housing question. I think the housing question is a very important one as we consider the upward pressure on owner's equivalent rent. And in the US, unlike in Europe, for example, housing is a key component of consumer inflation. And that's an obvious risk when we think about the disparity between rentals, which are seeing downward pressure, particularly in some of the urban centers, and the upside, which is the flight to the suburbs and how quickly home prices have been bid up in the suburbs. Ian, I think you're exactly right in trying to bifurcate that inflationary picture story, if only because we've seen a demographic rotation out of urban areas to suburban areas. It makes sense that prices go up in suburban areas and go down in urban areas. Now, I took a look at how much urban area owner equivalent rent would have to fall to offset any increases in the suburbs. And using a little bit of back of the envelope math, it's something like 2.4 times. So what that means is if prices in the suburbs go up 10%, you'd need to see negative 24% or so in the cities in order to offset the two. I don't really see that as being likely, meaning that we still could see positive inflationary support from the move to the suburbs and from owner equivalent rent, but that is going to be a drag and it's really going to suppress any upside risk that could result from the real estate sector. And Ian, since you made a point about Europe, one of the things I find alarming about the European picture is that with a banking system that is arguably weaker than in other parts of the world, there's no clear roadmap for spurring sharply faster money creation in the economy and for monetary policy to encourage much more than ultra-low interest rates and asset price reflation. And I think in a European Union or a Eurozone context, this dynamic is somewhat worrying because the economies in question are by definition a lot more socialized than other parts of the developed world. And it's not clear how a socialized model can cope well with sustained appreciation of asset prices, but not a correspondingly strong real economy. So on the topic of the dollar and inflation, rule of thumb that I use is that somewhere 10 to 20% of a dollar move will pass through to inflation. What that means is that you need somewhere, you know, like a 10% dollar move before you have a meaningful impulse to inflation. And of course, that impulse doesn't get felt right away. It's more of a over a six to 18 month period that you feel that. Look, the dollar has declined, we'll call it 5% over the last quarter. Will that bring an impulse to inflation? Yes, probably next year, in particular if the dollar move extends further. But is it enough to cause the Fed to move from their most recent lower for longer stance? Probably not. 
Well, there certainly are a lot of unknowns on the policy front. The Fed has made it very clear that their stance is going to be lower for longer, but any of the policy initiatives we might or might not expect to see out of the White House will certainly be determined at the presidential election. That's going to be a difficult one for us to skew in the rates market, at least, if for no other reason than the lead that Biden appears to have in the polls should lead one to assume that a transition in the White House is already priced in. But if we think about historically what a Democratic president has implied for risk assets, the business environment, and taxes, one should think that equities would be doing something other than continuing to set record highs. And as that translates through to U.S. rates, it implies a cap at which the longer end of the curve can back up until we have some type of clarification and a solid outlook on the policy front. With regard to the implications for the market on who wins the election, I think the front end of the U.S. rates curve, certainly out to five years, seems like it's pegged low for long. And regardless of who's president, that's likely to be the case. So the risk could be to the long end. And some of that may depend on the deficit expectations and whether you actually get the bear vigilantes coming in. I think our projections currently for 2021 issuance are running over $3 trillion, which is quite a lot on the back of this record year. We will have to see how the market absorbs that. Of course, if there is an issue and the market gets messy, the Fed is likely to step in with additional monetary policy, which could include a twist. And to your point, caps how far the long end may back up in the near term. Well, presumably it has some implications for credit spreads as well as risk assets more broadly with a nod to the continued outperformance of the equity market. Yeah, Ian, I think it certainly has ramifications for credit spreads. I think among the myriad questions we're going to get answers to over the next few months, it kind of boils down to one big one for credit spreads, and that's will an effective vaccine arrive in time to prevent another potential round of job losses? We talked about employment a bit earlier, and yes, there's been some good momentum recently, but looking at the amount of corporate supply we've had since March, and particularly in just in August, it implies to me a great deal of uncertainty that remains in the corporate sector. Obviously, we've had historic issuance so far this year, but if we look at August alone, just 30% of issuance has been for refinancing purposes, which is in line with long-term averages. So this debt issuance isn't coming just because rates are super low and we want to refinance old debt. It's also because there's still a heavy demand for corporations to keep cash high is there's this expectation that the economic recovery that's begun is going to continue through Q3. So if we go back into a lockdown, whether that's government imposed or self-imposed, and we note that there is no longer any government stimulus after lawmakers failed to reach a fifth round of a fiscal stimulus. Business could come under significant pressure here in the fall months. And some of those jobs that have been hanging in the balance as business waits to see whether or not things come back could ultimately be lost and I think would unleash another round of spread widening unless a vaccine arrives in time to prevent that. You know, Dan, I think you raised some really interesting points, and it brings me kind of back to the employment picture. We're currently expecting a slow grind lower in employment over an extended period of time. And I can't help but ask the question, how could we be wrong? And for me, part of that answer is if we do get some sort of an infrastructure program coming out of the federal government, and that could be a traditional bricks and mortar infrastructure program. It could be green 
oriented, regardless, that would be one way to speed up the recovery and offset some of these risks that we're talking about. And like you pointed out, though, they've been unable at this point to pass another round of fiscal stimulus and kind of brings us back to the election. If you get a blue sweep, the chances of additional fiscal stimulus, as well as infrastructure program increase, which could help to offset some of the unemployment due to the pandemic. Margaret, I think that's a really interesting way to view the potential outcomes of a blue sweep and maybe explains a little bit why what Ian alluded to earlier, uh, why we haven't seen a bit of a negative reaction from the stock market in response to what we would presume to be a pricing in of a Biden victory at this point. But I agree with Ian from a credit spread perspective. I think that a blue sweep or a Biden victory would be a headwind for risk assets, not just because of the taxation policies. Also, any expectation that U.S.-China relations might improve with a Biden victory have been sort of dashed in recent weeks, as well as Biden recently stating that he would support re-implementation of lockdown if the medical community recommended that that was what was best to fight the coronavirus. So if a Democratic outcome in November would ultimately be bad for risk assets, that would imply that potentially they're not pricing that in yet. And I can think of two reasons for why that might be. One is that the market is waiting to see whether or not these polls turn out to be real. There's certainly a greater deal of skepticism surrounding polling numbers now than just four years ago, given the Trump victory and the results of Brexit. Or two, it could be that the market's just myopically focused on the pandemic and on the potential for a vaccine, which we expect to have news on before the election, that the market's trading COVID-19 and not yet trading the presidential election, which sets us up for repricing potentially in November. I think part of it is that there's so much uncertainty surrounding this election relative to past elections that is difficult to know how to price it. It's difficult to know what the outcome was going to be. We've got the issues with regard to counting mail-in votes. We've got early voting. You've got the in-person voting during the pandemic and voter turnout, in addition to the polling side of it. It's very, very hard to price when there's so much potential variance around the outcome. Yeah, Margaret, and a great example of how that could play out in real time on election day If there's a difference between Republican and Democrat willingness to vote in person versus in mail, the early results could skew to one party, even if the later ones kind of come back. What that means is that actually trading the event or getting a real-time signal from what's going on is going to be much more difficult and could actually take days or weeks rather than the traditional just very late Tuesday night. Typically, when people in the foreign exchange market hedge an election, you know, they might hedge a few days after the election date. But this time around, can you stick in a hedge for a November 15th expiry and be confident that you've really hedged the result? Probably not. Probably you need to uh, hedge out to past year end which could put a little bit of a liquidity squeeze on the year end date. That's an interesting point, Greg. And so it seems like just from a high level All the topics we've touched on so far today, uncertainty seems to be the unifying theme. And so while we maintain our long-term view that credit spreads are likely to touch new historical lows in the current cycle, potentially within the next 12 months, all the uncertainty in the near-term horizon makes me think that that's unlikely and that we might actually see a modest widening in credit spreads before the move narrower to all-time tights. Ian, how does the uncertainty impact your view on the rates market in the next three months? 
Well, I certainly think that the vast majority of the front end of the curve has been anchored to this new regime in which we know that uncertainty will be the norm for a very, very long time. And that's been reiterated by the monetary policy stance. What I'll be really fascinated to see is whether or not the treasury market trades off of some of the recently redefined seasonal patterns, which suggests that the fourth quarter will be characterized by pricing in optimism for the year ahead. Think of it this way. Can 2021 really be any worse than 2020? If your baseline assumption is no, then it makes sense that we would anticipate an upward drift in rates as the year comes to an end that would be primarily focused in the long end of the curve and result in a curve steepening. My biggest concern is that the uncertainty that you referenced isn't going to prevent a sell-off, but it will cap it. So we're not having a conversation about whether or not 10-year yields are going to get to 2%, even though the Fed has just told us they would be content to let inflation run high for the foreseeable future. We're focused on the potential to see a one-handle in 10s with the caveat that that would prove to be a massive buying opportunity because there are just so many unknowns for the next several quarters. One of the other key takeaways from how the market has traded during the pandemic has been the Fed's emphasis on financial conditions and the correlation between equity volatility and tighter financial conditions. This has effectively institutionalized the Powell put. And so it's with that context that we'll continue to keep a watchful eye on the performance of domestic equities and imagine a situation in which we see a 10 or 15% correction in stocks. What is the Fed going to do in that case? It seems pretty obvious, given their track record, that they would need to do something, whether that is outcome-based hard forward guidance or some additional hints about yield curve control would be a function of the character of the correction in stocks. If it was industry specific, I think the Fed would be less compelled to be aggressive. But if it was broad-based, something comparable to what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, I do think that the Fed would be prompted into action. So Ian, basically the environment would continue to be bad news is good news, Good news is great news because we have this backdrop of extremely accommodative monetary and fiscal policy where the government and the Fed, if they had to act, they would act and they've got the tools to act. So again, backstopping the economy, going back to the Powell put. Just to sum up, I think our bottom line here is that we don't expect the reinflation trade to really take off until there's positive momentum in the employment data and that it is sustainable and we're several years away from that. The massive shock to aggregate demand is actually disinflationary and it's going to take a while to reverse that trend given the overall backdrop of the economy, which had been disinflationary or lacking inflation growth for some time. Thank you to all of our BMO experts and thank you for listening. This concludes Macro Horizons monthly episode 19, Falling into Place, a Corona Session Election. Please reach out to us with feedback and any ideas on topics you'd like us to tackle. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. 
please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.karens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.